Okay, good morning. This is Richard Shu, host of Shoe Untied. Uh, today I'm very pleased to have with me as my guest uh, Dick Pogue, who's the uh, special advisor, former managing partner of Jones Day. Dick, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. So, Dick, before we get into a topic that I'm, I'm very interested in, just tell me very briefly sort of your background and uh, your, your, a little bit about your legal career. Okay, I was born in Boston. I really grew up in Washington, D.C., went to Cornell University and then Michigan Law, Law School, had three years in the Pentagon as an Army JAG officer, and then in 1957, I joined Jones Day here in Cleveland. At that time, it had just two offices, uh, Cleveland and Washington, and uh, <clears throat> I was an antitrust lawyer and then a corporate takeover lawyer, and uh, in 1994, 1984, I became the managing partner of the firm, and that was a period of great expansion, and we grew from five offices at that time to 20 during my term, and uh, grew from about 340 lawyers to 1250, so it was, in the 80s, a period of great expansion in the legal profession, and I was part of that. Sounds like quite a And then I, I, I retired in 1994 went to work with a public relations firm for nine years. And then in 2004, the firm, asked, Jones Day, asked me to come back. I've been here ever since. And uh, the main reason was that uh, we had a new managing partner in 2003 who was not from Cleveland. He was in Washington. Our managing partner had always been active in the local community. And so he asked me to come back to kind of perform that role. And I've been doing that ever since. Sounds like quite a historic career. Well, a lot of fun, a lot of challenges, a lot of opportunities. Now, one, one so the topic I want to talk to you about today is, uh, you know, I think you have uh, been have quite a bit of comments or thoughts about how the legal profession has changed. I think you referenced the Supreme Court case, which you think changed that. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I have a. a belief, which I've espoused in many occasions. I uh, have taught a course up at Michigan Law School regarding the really the dramatic transformation of the legal profession during my lifetime, and it was really sparked by a uh, United States Supreme Court case called Goldfarb versus State Bar of Virginia, which was decided in 1975, and then uh, I'll discuss that in a minute, and then a follow-up case called Bates versus Arizona in 1977, and then the creation of the American Lawyer magazine in 1978. So those three events really dramatically changed the profession. Hmm. Before before the Goldfarb case, going back centuries into English common law, the, the practice of law, particularly in large law firms, was a very uh, quiet, subdued, withdrawn. Uh, very few people knew much about it. Uh, there were reasons for that, but uh, the Goldfarb case changed everything. And since then, it's been a totally different profession with a lot of emphasis on marketing and the business aspects of the practice. Before Goldfarb, the uh, <clears throat> we regarded ourselves as a learned profession along with medicine and uh, 
religion. And as a result, we considered ourselves as exempt from the antitrust laws. And the consequences of that were that the profession uh, could discuss uh, salaries among themselves, minimum fee schedules were very common. There was an absolute prohibition on advertising or promotion or marketing. And uh, it got to the point where in New York, uh, every summer, the managing partners of the major firms would get together for lunch and agree on what the starting salaries would be for the new associates coming in. Hmm. So that was one aspect of it. And another was there were very stable relations with clients. If you had a corporate client that was your client, more or less for life, and there was no shopping around or questioning of bills or anything, no second-guessing of fees and so forth. Uh, and uh, it was a mark of distinction if you were a uh, lawyer for a firm to go on their board of directors. Of course, now that's regarded as a conflict of interest. And thirdly, there was very little information about firms. No Nobody had any right to ask questions of law firms. No information about revenues, profits, even numbers of lawyers we wouldn't disclose. And then uh, fourthly, I think uh, it was a period in which there was very little nobility. You you stuck with one firm. If you became a partner, you stayed there for life. There was no uh, motion back and forth, very few mergers, very few group transfers, and very small firms. I remember around 1960, Sherman and Sterling in New York, which was then the biggest firm in the world, reached 100 lawyers. And we all thought, well, that's ridiculous. That, uh, <laughs> you can't manage 100 lawyers. <laughs> then in 1975 came the Goldfarb case. This was a case brought by a young antitrust lawyer, actually, with the antitrust division of the Department of Justice. He wanted to buy a house in uh, Fairfax County, Virginia, and to do that, he had to have a lawyer's title opinion. So he asked for a quote, how much would it cost me, and the lawyer gave him a number. Goldfarb didn't like that, so he went to 38 other lawyers and asked them how much would would they charge for a title opinion. Every one of them quoted exactly the same uh, fee, so he smelled a rat, and uh, he brought an antitrust case against the uh, local bar association and the state bar saying that uh, this minimum fee schedule that all these lawyers were adhering to was a violation of the antitrust laws. And, of course, the defense was, no, we're we're not subject to the antitrust laws. That only applies to trade or commerce. We're not a business. We're a learned profession. Hmm. And that position won in the Fourth Circuit and somehow or other, Goldfarb got his case into the U.S. Supreme Court, and uh, there were like, I don't know, maybe 40 amicus briefs from bar associations all over the country that pronounced the same theme. We're a learned profession. We are not trader commerce. We are not a business. Wrong, said the Supreme Court, eight to nothing. You mm. are a learned profession, true, but you are also a business. And therefore, you have to uh, be subject to the antitrust laws. You have to compete. Uh, you must be able to advertise, promote, market yourselves, solicit clients, and so forth. It took a long time for the profession to really understand the significance of that case. But gradually, they did. And then in the 80s, there was a 
period of tremendous expansion, mergers, acquisitions. Uh, our firm went international, and uh, ever since Goldfarb, really. And oh, and I forgot to say Bates. The Bates case, Bates versus Arizona, was in 1977, and that Supreme Court case said that advertising is uh, proper. Lawyer, the, the, this was a case where a couple of lawyers in Phoenix were advertising their services in the local paper, and the bar association went after them for violating the, the uh, prohibition on advertising, and it got to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said. Of course you can advertise. You're a business like anybody else. And then on the strength of those two cases, a young lawyer, I think he'd been with Cravath, but uh, named Steve Brill, started up a magazine called The American Lawyer in 1978. And its purpose was to take advantage of these changes and expose law firms for you know what their inner... Uh, activities were their revenues or profits or expansion or uh, all the sort of uh, <laughs> hidden secrets of law firms and it was a tremendous success and uh, so it fueled this emphasis on changing the profession from essentially a learned profession into a business as well so that's a long response to your question but that's what Goldfarb was all about Mm, interesting. Well, when Stephen Brill started the American Lawyer, yeah. when he first started trying to get information, why did the law firms give it to him? I mean, I understand today oh. there's a peer pressure, but back then, why why would they even give him that information? Well, they didn't. They resisted strongly. And all of us who were in the profession hated the idea of the American Lawyer coming around snooping and trying to get information. So Brill and company figured out that they would identify a partner in a firm who was either disaffected or was, uh, you know, voluble or would talk and, and they would undermine the firms by going to individual partners and uh, sort of enticing them to talk about the firm. And, mm. and, uh, and then as time went on, as some firms had their numbers disclosed, then other firms would be sort of jealous and they'd say, well, we got more revenues than they do. And so then they would freely give their information. So it was a long process that the American lawyer went through, and, but gradually uh, they got most of the firms to uh, cooperate. It took probably 20 years for all that to happen because the, the reaction of the profession to the Goldfarb and Bates cases was very negative. We all hated the idea of disclosing information and making public all this internal information, but so we all resisted, and it it took a long time before uh, people began to realize, yes, okay, we are a business like anybody else. Well, um, so obviously that was definitely a monumental case that obviously did change the legal profession. But can you comment on you know do you see good and bad things that have happened? I mean, I'm assuming you know that's obviously has changed it, but but how do you sort of view the changes? Do you view them as generally yeah, good for the profession, well, bad for the profession? What would you say? Well, you know, those of us who lived under the old system still sort of have a nostalgic uh, re recall of it. It was, uh, you could just focus on your work. You didn't have to think about marketing and taking business away from people. Uh, here, here's an example of how far it went uh, uh, there was a partner in another law firm in Cleveland that we 
he was a tremendous lawyer, great business getter, great uh, servicer. And uh, he came down to see us one day and said, well, he was unhappy at his firm and he was thinking of making a change and would uh, we be interested in in bringing him on board. And I, I was actually in the meeting when our managing partner said to him, well, Mr. Jones, as we sit here this afternoon, are you still a partner in your old firm? And the guy said, well, yeah, technically I'm still a partner. I haven't left yet, but I'm unhappy and I want to leave. And our managing partner said, well, then we're not going to talk to you. As long as you're a partner in another firm, we can have no conversation with you whatsoever. <laughs> if you want to resign from your firm, then we'll be able to talk with you and see if we have a place for you. So that that was an example of mm. what some people call the good old days. And so... There were a lot of positive aspects of the old system, but there were a lot of negatives too. It was an inbred system. Uh, it, it was uh, there was no diversity to speak of in the major law firms. There were there was uh, very little mobility. If a lawyer was unhappy, he basically just you know screwed up his courage and stayed with the firm because he didn't think he'd have a chance to go somewhere else. Uh, the advertising has helped the public, uh, particularly on the plaintiff side, because many people who have legitimate legal issues either didn't know about the existence of legal remedies or didn't know where to turn. And so there have been a lot of benefits of it. And But whether it's good or bad, it doesn't matter, because <laughs> that's the system now. <laughs> we all have to live with it. Interesting. Well, where do you see the legal profession headed now? I mean, today, fast forward 2017, you've been you've been in law firms yeah. for 50 plus years. Um, you know, where do you see well, things headed? That's a, that's a very good question. I see that we're in the middle of or about to come upon a second major transformation in the profession, and it's basically due to technology. Technology is changing the profession so dramatically mm. and it's uh, making the need for lawyers uh, less significant. I mean, you can do things now so much more efficiently than you could before the technology revolution came along. Uh, for example, uh, when when I was practicing uh, in the early days, uh, every lawyer had a secretary just assigned to him. In fact, when I was managing partner, I had two secretaries. Now, one secretary services seven or eight lawyers. I mean, mm. just so the the staff size is cut down, but the lawyer size is cut down too. A lot of the work that young associates used to do in terms of research and that kind of thing is all very easily done in a fraction of the time through technology. And so as a result, I think we we have way too many lawyers uh, right now. The law firms, the law schools, excuse me, are experiencing this. The number of the profession is less desirable to, in some senses, and the number of applications is way down. A couple of years ago, five law schools went out of business. Uh, it's it's just all it's it's a little more amorphous than the prior change that I talked about, and it's a little more strung out. But the result is a is a 
second uh, revolution in the profession, in my view. Well, do you think, I mean, there's been a lot of consolidation in the legal market, obviously, and now there's all these mega firms. You talked about how large the firms have gotten. <clears throat> Jones Day is one of them. But do you see yep. maybe a resurgence of smaller firms that might come about? Or do you think, do you think that these mega firms will continue to exist or even consolidate further? Yeah, no, I think the, the large law firms are, are here to stay. They, they provide services, particularly in the corporate community, that uh, just can't be handled by a smaller firm. So they're, they're here to stay. But what's changing, I think, is the middle-sized and smaller firms are being subjected more and more, so a lot, large firms are too to some extent, by alternative providers. Uh, right now, the let's say, talk about the accounting firms, the major accounting firms. In the 90s, they made an effort to get into the legal business and it didn't succeed very well. But now, with all these technology changes, uh, the big four and other accounting firms have legal uh, units. They're usually separately uh, incorporated, but they're coming in. Uh, We've got Zoom Law or whatever you call it. They've got a lot of... uh, And there's an effort in many uh, states to uh, enable non-lawyers to provide various services that lawyers used to provide. Mm. So the the pressures on the smaller firms, I think, are are pretty considerable because of all the alternative providers that uh, they're up against. That applies to some extent to the big firms as well, but I I think it's a little more pronounced in the middle-sized and smaller firms. So what do you do at Jones Day now as, as, as you're in your role, current role? What, do, what are you doing for the firm now? Yeah. Well, as I say, I was brought back to uh, provide sort of community engagement. So I'm on a lot of local nonprofit boards and do I'm sort of a voice of the firm out in the marketplace. And uh, so I do a lot of that. Uh, once in a while, I get involved in a little client development. Uh, as you get older... You lose touch with uh, the clients, but I still have some relationships that we can rely on. And then various special projects that the firm asked me to take on. So it's I'm not practicing law. I, I keep up my license. I'm qualified to practice, but uh, as time goes on, you, your relationships with the clients gradually fade away. So I'm mainly... You, uh, I, I, work full-time. I work six days a week. I average about 3,000 hours a year, but they're not chargeable. They're simply <laughs> kind of promotional for the firm. Well, as you know, it's a I great also, life. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm sure it is. Um, well, as you know, I also interviewed your son for my program, uh, David, yeah. who's obviously a very well-known, renowned celebrity technologist, and he talked about the fact that he, that your family, you, you and I think several of your other family members are all lawyers, um, what do you think about the fact that David did what he did and, and didn't become a lawyer? Well, it's interesting. Uh, <clears throat> earlier this summer, Michigan Law School invited David and me to give the commencement speech. So we did a joint uh, presentation to the law school, and uh, I was talking kind of about the past, some of these things I just discussed, and he was talking about the future and what uh, technology is going to uh, I mean, and he he described the fact that uh, his father's a lawyer, his two siblings are lawyers, his grandfather was a lawyer, and so <laughs> forth. 
and that uh, when he graduated from college, he said to me, uh, Dad, I know there are a lot of lawyers in the family, but I really want to be a, a Broadway composer, and I want to go to New York and make my mark in music, because he was a music major at Yale. And uh, he quoted me as saying, well, that's fine, Dave, go ahead, I'll support you financially for two years, and then when you get tired of that, then you'll can go back to law school. But uh, <laughs> he was a success from the very beginning, so that never happened. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so was your father also a lawyer as well? Yes, he was. In fact, that's an interesting story if you have a minute. Uh, yeah. He was a farm boy in Iowa, southwest Iowa. He never went to school until the 10th grade, and um, he uh, he witnessed a series of, uh, of a, a major case in southwest Iowa called the Axe Murder axe murder cases. It's still famous, still talked about in Villisca, Iowa. And for some reason, he attended that trial as a 12-year-old boy, and he was fascinated by the lawyers and the role they had. So he decided he wanted to go to become a lawyer. So he convinced his parents to board him at high school, went to college, then went to Michigan Law School, then went to Harvard Law School and got a doctorate in law. Then he uh, joined uh, Ropes and Gray, which was the biggest firm in Boston then. And six weeks later, they decided to open a uh, Paris office, and they needed a young lawyer to go with the partner to open. So he goes to Paris. So in 12 years, he went from being a farm boy, never in a schoolhouse, to <laughs> practicing on the Seine. <laughs> so when he came back from Paris, he uh, he eventually became joined the Civil Aeronautics Board, which then regulated civil aviation and soon became the chairman of it. And in those days, it totally regulated uh, aviation. And he did that for six years. And when he left, he formed his own law firm in Washington with airlines as his main clients. And in 1967, his firm was growing like a weed. They had about 20 lawyers by that time. And uh, our firm had a small Washington office. It wasn't doing much. And uh, make a long story short, we acquired his firm. Oh, funny. He became, the, he became the partner in charge of our Washington office for 12 years. I was already a partner in Cleveland by that time. Oh, so you're, you and your dad actually got to practice in the same law firm then? Yeah, we did for 12 years. Oh. So did it seem like when you were growing up as a kid, watching your dad become a lawyer, it just seemed like a very natural thing for you to do the same thing? Is that, I mean, is that kind of how you ended up being a lawyer? No, it really wasn't. When I graduated from college in 1950, I, I didn't really know what to do. I wanted to be a sports writer. I was a great admirer of a, of a uh, New York Times sports writer in the day. and But... I wasn't quite ready to decide what to do, so I thought, well, maybe I'll go to law school. That'll stall things for three years, and maybe that'll help me decide which direction to go. So it really wasn't my father. It was more kind of a holding action until I could uh, make an informed decision as to what to do. Well, Dick, I know you're a young man and everything, but what are your retirement plans, or do you have any retirement plans? No, I do it one year at a time. Uh, the uh, firm has told me I can stay here as long as you know I'm functioning, and I'm very grateful to them for that. Well, Dick, this has been a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time. This is the first father-son uh, combination pair I've had on my program, so it was a real thrill and honor to have and speak with you. 
Well, thank you. I, I'm honored to have been asked, and I appreciate your good questions. This is Richard Chu and Dick Pope. Thank you. Thank you.